What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And if you've been with us for nearly the last seven years, can you believe that, Mr. Stay? Seven, the magic number. <laughs> or maybe this is your first ever, you've been, you've been like searching around on podcast land and you've just stumbled across us today. We want to welcome you all to today's podcast. And... We're going to tell you right up front, this is going to be massively, massively inspiring. If you've if you've ever needed a bit of a little extra boost this week, this is the podcast for you. But before we dive in, we'd like to say thank you to all of our patrons that support this podcast and our Bestseller Academy members, our Academates as we call them. Um, we are so grateful to everyone who uh, is part of that group. It's such an amazing, amazing group of people. And Indeed they are. Uh, yeah. And uh, if you're interested in finding out more, well, you know where to go, academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. So, Mark, we've got some very exciting news to share, haven't we? Really, really special uh, interview coming next week. Next week marks seven years of the podcast, if you can add them and Eve it. Uh, so, yeah, seven years. And I did an interview recently that, was really powerful, really, really moving. And it's with the remarkable author, Heather Morris, who is the massively international best-selling author of The Tattooist of Auschwitz, uh, which is an extraordinary novel. We talk about how that came about, but she also has a new book called Sisters Under the Rising Sun coming next week. Really good interview. You'll hear a point in that where I almost start blubbing. Um, it's uh, it's powerful stuff. Uh, don't miss it basically, in short. Brilliant, brilliant. So, Mr. Stay, how's the come down been after the couple of weeks of uh, <laughs> the book coming out? It's been very nice, actually. I've been getting, um, been getting very nice comments, uh, reviews, reviews are coming in, and people are liking it a lot, which is really nice. And the other thing I've got is uh, I just learned the other day, completely by accident, no one told me, but uh, Unwelcome is now on Sky Cinema in the UK. Uh, so, yeah, going to get lots of eyes on that. Um, which is nice. So uh, yeah, it's a um, bit of a double whammy. So yeah, That's but I I just got my head down. I'm working on book five and uh, another book, and I'm editing another book, and I'm putting together a pitch. For, I'm doing a lot. So <laughs> a lot. <laughs> just an average just, week in Mister Stay's world. Now it, it with with, <laughs> with um, publishing books, I, we've heard a lot of times. You know, people who especially when they're publishing their first book, it's such a massive build-up. I mean, we went through the process, didn't we, with, you know, back to reality. But, you know, there's such a big build-up and then there's the bigger launch. And for a lot of people, there's suddenly this, a bit like, you know, performing a theatre production. There's a lot of work goes into it up front. And then once it's out there and it's, you know, it's done, so to speak, in terms of the books available, there can be a bit of an anticlimax. But it sounds to me like, you know, because you've done this enough times now, you know... The process you know that it's you're in for the long haul it's the beginning of 
the marketing yeah, I remember, of the book, isn't it? Rather than, oh, it you know it hasn't sold 3 million copies on its first day of launch. I remember when I, I passed my driving test and my instructor said to me, well done, he says, but this is just the beginning. You know, mm. every day you're going to be learning something new and every day. So, and it's, it's kind of like that. It's, you have a bit of fun with the launch day and it was great fun. And, um, oh, and I found out those stones, you know, we we're asking about the stone on the staff oh, last yeah. week. Yeah. It is, it's, it's a hagstone and the hagstones that, that you can, they're, they're stones with little holes eroded in them that if you hold them up, you can see fairies and witches and stuff like that. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, Raven gave me an update on that. Uh, I had a very long message from her explaining all about it. But yeah, it <laughs> so I did I did find out for you. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. Any news on the nonfiction thing? Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, actually, oh, I tell you what, Mark, nonfiction is so different from writing fiction. And one of the big things that I've been working on this week is it's a process that I... I've been doing a lot in other areas of my life, which I call reverse engineering, which is kind of rather than starting at the beginning and try and get to the end, I'm starting not even at the end of the book. I'm going way beyond the end of the book and what I would like the book to create out in the world and what kind of things might happen and, and planning all of that stuff. So it's sitting there, not ready and waiting. Now I know, I know what this you're going to say. This sounds like procrastination to me. This sounds like no, someone this... doing their well building before I tell you they what, it do would the be procrastination. It, it would be procrastination if I wasn't doing any work on it. But honestly, I've been working. I've been doing so much thought process around it, like filling up. I'm almost like you know, second second notebook thought and, processes. But, but are you but actually putting pen to paper? All kinds of stuff, Mark. Pen to paper. Yeah, <laughs> writing stuff. But logo D- designs. Don't make me go Aronovich on you. <laughs> no, 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 I want you to. I, that's what I need. No, but the, the, the interesting thing is nonfiction is so different from fiction writing. Like there's a whole, like I've, I've, I'm developing a logo for this brand of what the book's going to become. Right, I've right. already registered the URL because it's going to be more, the book is like the gateway into this world, you know, that I'm trying to create. And so I need to see, this is just how my mind works. And I think it works for some authors as well, is that you need to see the bigger picture you want to, you really have to visualize what's coming down the road because that totally changes how you write the book and how you plan the book. And I've done this in so many, a bit like the Academy in some ways, you know, I remember when we started the pot, even before we started the podcast, I was already talking about, I really want to build this Academy where people come in. Do you remember that? Like we talked about that before the first episode and, and, and it's, I think it's, and then it was many years of kind of seeing it, planning it and growing it and then launching it that made it happen and made it work. And so I've, I've just found in my life, this is something I've done in every business I've started, every venture I've been in. And it's just how I work. It's like I need my GPS coordinates of knowing where I'm heading. And then it's going to be, I'm, I'm going to waste a lot less time when I actually sit down. And I've got, but I've got so much stuff. Honestly, I dictated... Um, I don't know if I told you this or if it was in the academy coaching, but I dictated two and a half thousand words on my phone mm-hmm. that I had written in rough draft in the book and I dictated it into a Google Doc in less than an hour. Right, and right. it was its spelling was so much better than mine. <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> just the lack of editing that I'll have to. So I'm going to be sharing in the academy like this, how you can use, there's some hidden features on the iPhone that not many people know about, mm. which are way better than just that button that you press. You know, the, there's a, there's a mic oh, with button the, you press. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, there's yeah. there's something hidden in here I've discovered, which is absolute gold dust. So I'm going to be talk, you know talking a little bit more about what I've been using that for. So yeah, big adventure right now. Very Good. excited. And in November, 
we've got Kate Harrison coming into the academy to coach our new Brilliant. nonfiction writers. So there's That'd still if people are interested in joining me. We're looking for about twelve people to join. Like it's going to be like Robin Hood and his Merry Men, um, writing this book, writing your book alongside me writing my book. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. So jump over to the academy and check that out. Good stuff. Now, one thing that's very inspiring that we've seen a bit of, but this is probably one of the most inspiring stories we've had around this, is this idea of uh, what we like to call late bloomers or people that make the most of the opportunities they've got. And today's interview is absolutely no exception, is it? Yeah, this is this was such a, a great interview. This is Julie Owen Moylan. She's a novelist and filmmaker. Her graduation short film, Baby Cakes, scooped best film at the Swansea Film Festival, where Ken Russell was a judge. And Ken Russell strikes me, he was a very hard man to please. So that, that is a hell of an achievement. She's also written two novels, That Green-Eyed Girl, which came out in 2022. And just this summer, uh, she released 73 Dove Street, which has been getting the most amazing reviews. And you'll hear in the interview, I have given the, I was given a proof copy by the publisher and I gave it to my mum. She's loving it, absolutely loving it. So Julie and I, we discuss thinking visually and using images as inspiration, why it's the smallest details that can make all the difference in fiction and how Julie's tiny, weird obsessions ended up being liberating. Brilliant. So let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with the inspirational Julie Owen Moylan. Julie Owen Moylan, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Lovely indeed. Um, certainly a bit better than London in 1958, which is the setting <laughs> of 73 Dove Street, um, which uh, now I was fascinated by this because my Irish grandparents came over to London around about the same time. And in the publicity material that was sent over, there was there were photos by a photographer called Bert Hardy. And there's one of a woman standing on what I think is Waterloo platform in a coat and hat. She's holding a couple of uh, bags. And it's just made me think of my nan. She's looking a bit lost. Uh, tell us about this book and, and what inspired it and, and those photos. Well, the book is basically the story of three complicated women, Edie, Tommy and Phyllis. Um, they're all kind of haunted by their past and they're all carrying secrets. And their lives collide at this extremely shabby boarding house in West London, which is 73 Dove Street. Um, and it's really a, a story about the resilience of women and particularly of working class women. Uh, and I really wanted to kind of pay tribute to the women that came before. I mean, I dedicated this book to my grandmother. Uh, and it was really just thinking about that kind of generation of women and the generations that have come since that lived in a world that had so few rights mm. and had to really make their own way. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm I, I was lucky enough to be given a proof, which I'm sending straight to my mum. She is gonna love this. She's absolutely <laughs> gonna love this. So um tell us about the the structure of this as well, because it's um yeah, it's set in London, nineteen fifty-eight. But there are constant flashbacks. You know, two years earlier, two weeks earlier. Tell yeah. us about that structure and why you chose to 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 do that. Well, I wanted to tell the story of these three women coming together, but I also, in order to do that, needed to tell the story of how Edie came to arrive at 73 Dove Street in the mm -hmm. first place. So I structured the book. So you have one chapter um, 
in the present day of October 1958 and the other chapter in um, five years before, four years before. So that kind of, uh, the flashbacks act as a kind of countdown up yeah. back to the present day. So I did that, um, first of all, almost accidentally during the first draft <laughs> that just falls out of your writing brain and you go, oh, where did that come from? And then when I was sitting in that first process of editing, I thought, oh, this could be a countdown. This could actually increase the dramatic tension in yeah. the structure. This is a good thing. Let's do more of this. <laughs> Excellent. So it sounds to me like you're not much of a planner. You you are discovering these characters. You're discovering Edie and, and Tommy and Phyllis as you're writing. You're getting to know them. Is that is that your process? I have been very proudly a pantser for my first two books. Right. I have I I usually think about um the characters for quite a while before I start writing. So there's, there's a gestational kind of period. And when I feel I've really got them, then I I, I go. I often have a vague ending. I, I see it like a movie and I usually have like a final scene often. So I know I, I often compare it to kind of driving at night in fog with a bit of a dodgy headlight. I vaguely know where I'm going, but I can't see the road yeah. and I have no idea the twists and turns. Now, the book that I'm currently working on, because I am currently in the middle of first draft on book three, I have actually done a detailed plan for. Oh. And this is really interesting because I've never worked to a plan before. And yesterday, my characters just took a left turn. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now I'm I'm looking at the plan and going, oh no, it's a plan. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I've been there. I've definitely been there. I'd like to go back a bit because you were saying there's this gest gestation period where you're thinking yeah. about your characters, and mm. they and I know what that feeling is like. You you kind of do you do you sort of get to what feels like a tipping point where you think, aha, I can write this. And what, when do you know it's the right time? Is it when you have that vague ending? Or is there something about the characters where you think, okay, I know who they are now? Mm. Well, I have obviously thought about them and been doing kind of research around the period and looking at photographs and movies and all this kind of things. And I've got names and they kind of autobiographical details about these characters. Um the feeling of when to go is a really strange one. And mm. I can best describe it as a kind of a fullness, really. It's, uh, I mean, I, I've never had children, but I imagine it's like, you know, you are about to drop. There is no, <laughs> there is no further. You, know, you, you have to get this thing out of you. There is no, uh, there is no future in you just, you know, getting larger and larger. And so there is that kind of creative fullness where I just feel, Yes. Yeah. And it's almost like um, being, I describe it as like kind of stepping into the character so that I know that I'm no longer outside watching them. I'm inside them mm -hmm. and I, I can feel what they feel and they're going to do things that I'm no, no longer responsible for. And that's Brilliant. lovely. That's a lovely feeling because then it, it's real. And then hopefully you've got characters that people are going to go, oh, my goodness, when I read this book, I, I you know, I still worry about them. I, I, I want to yeah. know what happened to them. And I think that's great. I did my job. They're alive somewhere 
out there in the world. Brilliant. That's a brilliant answer. I want to talk, you mentioned photos and movies there. We, we mentioned the Bert Hardy mm. photos. Where did yeah. you encounter those? What, what Did they inspire the book or did they were they sort of fuel while you were writing? Um, I've always loved that kind of street photography, mm-hmm. um, whether uh, it, it, here or in the States, because um, I set my first book in New York and I used a lot of street photography to get that kind of vibe mm. as well. So it's always something I've really loved. But I'm quite a visual processor. And so I run my books almost as movies in my head as yeah. I'm writing them. So I find um, photographs, documentaries, movies, anything that's visual, uh, like kind of petrol to the fire. You mm. know, it's kind of like, oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, I often find an image Um and sometimes I, sometimes it actually I I can go yes that's the character that's Ed or that's Tommy that's what they would be like yeah. and I can go from there and I can kind of breathe life into them. I just find it incredibly helpful to have those visual cues all along the the way. Do you store them anywhere? Do you have like a Pinterest board or do you a file or anything where you keep them or do you have them up, pinned above the the computer or? What? Um, I I keep interesting ones. I mean, I usually just kind of, you know, Google for images and then I will save them. Um, And so I can go back and have a look uh, and try and pick up the kind of tiny details of them. Uh, The other thing that I often do is I read fiction that was written in that period that I'm trying to write in. And because I see visually as I read as well, then I... I am forming that picture and I'm getting those tiny details that often you can't get. They get lost in history books and yes. things. But yeah. if someone's written something, they don't even know they've done it often. They haven't done it deliberately. It's just a normal part of life. Yeah, It's like yeah. we might talk about Zoom calls or something in a book, you know, and in, you know, a hundred years time, people may not know what that is even. So Yeah, no, it's it's those little day-to-day details, isn't it? And you mm. will only get that in, in fiction written at the time or films set at the yeah. time because I, I, my yeah. stuff is set in the 1940s and it's just trying to find out how much a round of drinks was in a pub. Little things like that. Yes. It's yeah. really difficult to look up, but if you come across it in a book or in a film, it makes yeah. all the difference. I used to have a friend who loved reading uh, historical saga books, you know, and I would say, mm. what is it about these that you love? And she would say, it's things like, it would be the number 10 bus from Clapham Junction or whatever. It's yes. li- those little details that make all yeah. the difference, that all the difference. It, you- gold dust. Absolutely. It's absolute gold dust to, yeah. to writers. Completely. Now, you've sort of answered my next question, which is I one of the things I love about this is that sense of authenticity, particularly in the descriptions and in the dialogue as well. The dialogue is so strong. It's so vivid. Uh, and was was it a case of watching movies from that? And were there any particular books or films that in- inspired you? I watched a lot of um, great kind of kitchen sink drama movies, yeah, yeah, all yeah. the classics. So, uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, A Taste of Honey, The L Shaped Room, uh, Poor Cow, all of these fantastic Brilliant. things. Um, and the dialogue, I mean, you get a kind of sense of it from watching movies or reading, uh, you know, contemporary fiction from that time. But it comes from the characters, really. I think once you're inside those characters, you know that the way they're going to talk, and particularly with working-class women, um, because I grew up on a council estate, I come from a working-class background, 
I could write them from inside that community, not from a middle class writer's perspective of maybe looking outside that community and trying to understand what they're like. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I come from a working class family as well, and it's not that kind of Lord Lover Duck stuff that you get where it just makes yeah. you want to cringe. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, the, the women in my family did a lot more than curtsy and say, yes, sir, no, sir. Exactly, you know, yeah. That's not how working class women talk at all. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely <laughs> not. My not. Family. Um, let's, let's, let's go back to you. I want to talk about your careers day at school because I, I found this in, a, in an interview that you gave where you, you wanted to be a writer but mm. the the whole concept of being a writer, from, from your point of view in the world at that time, just was a, a crazy thing. So tell us about your career's day at school and and, and where <laughs> you ended up after that. Yeah, um, we had, I think it was one career's day. Uh, we didn't have a sixth form in my school. Then nobody ever thought there was any need for that, really. <laughs> um, and so... I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. I, I was very creative as a child and I loved writing and I used to put on little plays and do all of that kind of thing. Um, and I couldn't see anywhere around me that kind of a career. And I just knew that, you know, I had to leave school and get a job. That was quite important. We needed the money. And the, the careers teacher was our kind of physics teacher, was a kind of very brusque, no-nonsense kind of chap. And we were in this line getting closer to this person that I didn't like all that much, to be honest. He scared me a bit. And the girl in front of me said she wanted to be a hairdresser. And I thought, well, that sounds quite creative. Okay, I'll say that. <laughs> that's what that's what I said. And that's um, uh, what I ended up doing for, for a couple of years. So you wanted to say writer, but you were kind of too scared or too apprehensive to say it, so you went with hairdresser. I just knew it was pointless. I knew if I said writer that they would just look at me as if I was mad. I, I might as well have said, I'd like to be an astronaut, please. They would have gone, yeah. Yeah. no, <laughs> no, that's not for you. <laughs> but here we are, you're, you know, two books critically acclaimed and, you know, you're working on your third. You must have overcome that somehow. Tell us about the, the journey from being too frightened to call yourself a writer to being this amazing writer? Um, I did what I think a lot of women do when they get to midlife, was I started to kind of reflect on what I'd been doing. I did eventually find my way to university as a mature student. I took a well-trodden path for a lot of working-class women. It was what went into teaching, and I did that for quite some time. And then when I was about to come up to my 50th birthday, I, th I was kind of looking back and thinking, well, okay, you know, this has been reasonably successful for a girl from a council estate, you know. And, but there was part of me that I felt I'd abandoned along the way, that I'd left this kid behind uh, who was this dreamy, creative kid who loved to write and wanted to, to, to you know, write stories or do something very creative. And so I thought I had the opportunity to do a creative writing course. And I thought, I'm going to give that to myself as a 50th birthday present. Brilliant. And see what happens. <laughs> and it took a long time from there. Um, there were a lot of rejections. And then eventually, you know, I wrote something that people were interested in and I got signed and got a book deal. And here I am. You've, you've, 
compressed a lot of there's a lot to unpack there i mean i yeah, read, yeah, I read yeah. somewhere 70 rejections seven yeah. zero rejections yeah was there ever a point where you're thinking come on the time to give up or were you just determined to make it happen a uh, bit of both i mean i went through a lot of heartache i mean it wasn't just 70 rejections in one manuscript i did rewrite it and send it out it again yeah. and whatever yeah. but you know i didn't have enough craft i didn't have any mentoring i didn't really know what i was doing um and i did feel lots of times that maybe i was kind of like the you know the terrible x factor contestants that their family think they're wonderful and have been telling them they're great singers and then they get put on a public stage and utterly humiliated mm. and i was kind of thinking maybe i'm that maybe you know my husband saying to me, oh, well, I think you're really brilliant. Like, you know, and I said, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and, but yeah, it was hard. And and every time you get rejection, because there's nobody really on the other side that you're not actually sharing Christmas dinner with mm. that is going to say to you, um, no, you're, you're actually quite a talented writer. You just need the right project mm. because publishing's a business they're not just recruiting talented people they need a project they can sell yeah. that's the bit you're missing and if you go back and maybe start something else and you know maybe work on your craft a little bit more you know you can you can make this and that took me quite a long time to get to the point where i had somebody who actually said that to me Brilliant, brilliant. And your debut, That Green-Eyed Girl. Now, I don't want to get too hung up on this, but I know we have listeners who are over 50, are over 60, thinking, oh, I'm past it, I'm too old to get published. It's not true. That Green-Eyed Girl was published when you were 61, is that correct? Uh, it came out, yeah, just a couple of months before I turned 61. I signed my book deal with Penguin uh, just... I think a few weeks before I turned 60. So oh, yeah. yeah, they nobody in publishing is interested in how old you are at yeah. all. They're interested in how good you are. Yeah. Do you have a book that they can sell in the marketplace? That's all that matters. Can you do the the, the work? And I, I would say this that you know, being an older author is very much welcomed in publishing because you have such a wealth of experience. Mm. Um, but it is also a job. You know, I work extremely hard at mm. this and also at the marketing and the all the promotional stuff that you have to do. You know, it's not just writing stories. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. But it's great and age should not put anybody off having a crack at this. 100% agree. Totally agree. Also, you're a filmmaker as well. Uh, you've written and directed several short films, one of which, Baby Cakes, uh, which stars Margaret John, who listeners might know from District Nurse and Game of Thrones, uh, won Best Film Award at the Swansea Film Festival. I think Ken Russell was mm. a judge. What What did you learn from your filmmaking that you sort of ported over into your novel writing, if anything? Um, I started a kind of filmmaking. That kind of led me into writing, really, because part of filmmaking I was doing was script writing. And I actually thought I preferred the writing part. I like jobs you can do in your pyjamas, yes. generally. <laughs> <laughs> also, I found filmmaking frustrating because you can get, write a really good script and financing often to try and make a film mm. is 
such a frustrating process. And then you can't see your your baby made out into the world, you know. Whereas if you write a book and you know you can get published, or you could even self-publish a book. So you can get that creative work yeah. out to some kind of an audience. So yeah. Mm. But it it's very helpful in terms of um Getting to the meat of the story, I think there's no, there's not much time for waffle in a film script. Mm. Everything has to be show. Everything has to be this happens, then that happens, then that happens, then that happens. Every scene needs to have a purpose because every scene costs money. Yes. So I think if you take that into your writing, mm. um, it's probably pretty helpful, actually. Excellent stuff. And is is the filmmaking behind you now, or do you still have ambitions to make more films? Um. I think the filmmaking in terms of the directing and stuff is probably behind me um, because I prefer writing. But I may kind of turn some of my my books into screenplays if I have the, the time to, if I ever get the time <laughs> to, to actually have an extra project on top of the books I have, I'm contractually obliged to provide. But yeah, I am very tempted, particularly with Dove Street, actually, to... Mm. Um, I I think seventy three Dove Street is quite a cinematic, um, very much so, yeah. Book and and I I really think that that could make quite a good screenplay. So I, I'm I'm tempted to adapt that. Fantastic, excellent. Um, let's go back to your debut as well, because you sort of skimmed over that, that Green Eyed Girl. You were talking about publishers are looking for a project; they're looking for something that they can sell. Did you know that there was something different about that Green Eyed Girl that was that felt? commercial that felt like it was ready to be published was there something about it you thought ah oh, this is the one uh yeah yeah i think I, I think so i didn't i didn't set out to be deliberately more commercial it just felt like a more realized project in my mm-hmm. mind i think when you first start to write you often have so many themes that can often be quite confusing to you as much as anything. And, and I was guilty of I think one of the major sins of people who are trying to get published. We send things out too early because we want that mentoring. We want some validation. You know, we want to have our homework marked. Yeah. <laughs> and when it comes back, which is often just silence or that formal response of, you know, terribly sorry, not for me at this time. Um, it's heartbreaking. Mm. But what we haven't done is we haven't fully thought through, we maybe haven't fully realized the project and actually thought, what is this book about, actually? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is it that I want to say? And also there can be a temptation when you want to get published more than you actually want to write something that's authentic to you, which is critical. I think in the beginning, I wanted that kind of validation of saying, I've written a book, I've published a book. When I came to write That Green Eyed Girl, because I'd been through so many rejections, I thought, I don't care, actually, what anybody thinks. It may never be published, but I'm going to write something that I'm really proud of and that is something I want to say about women's lives and the complications of women's lives, which is my thing and what all my books are really focused on, and the nuances and the multiple layers and complexities. And I thought, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to make myself proud of this story. And if I get to that point and someone else is interested, great. And if not, I'm no worse off. 
Yeah. It's a good use of my heartbeat, as my husband um, <laughs> used to say to me, you know. That's a great And life. so that's that's what I did. <laughs> that's what I did. I kind of let go of the need to have other people mark my homework and just thought, I'm really proud of this book. Let's see. That and here is, we are. <laughs> is, is that also, that might be a thing of age, because I turned 50 this year, and I'm rapidly giving less and less of a tinker's cuss about what people mm. think <laughs> and oh, it's yeah. something when you're in your 20s and 30s you are desperately oh what are people what are people going to think of me yeah and that sort of fades in the 40s a bit but in now i'm like i just don't care anymore i'm going to do what i exactly. want to do it's very liberating exactly isn't that. it <laughs> oh it's so liberating it is so liberating and i just think you know i can only be me and nobody else can write my books there are many other great writers out there. There may be writers who are better than I am at all kinds of things, but nobody can write in the way that I write because nobody else has my history and my tiny little weird obsessions <laughs> and the things I'm fascinated with. So what you will get is the best Julio in Moylan book I can give you. I can't give you you know, a, a, an Anne Patchett book or a H Hilary Mantel book or a Sarah Waters book, if only I could. But, you know, I can only give you the best Julio in Moylan book. And I think once you get that, that's great. That's liberation because then that opens up this whole creative world that you think, well, who am I? What am I fascinated by? What do I have to say? And it ceases to be about just, I must get published, I must get a book deal, I must get an agent, oh my God, what am I doing? And it becomes this real artistic journey that you think, hang on, I really am a kind of creative, art, creative artist here. I'm trying to explore all kinds of sides of me and sides of women, and I'm trying to do that through story. And that's fascinates me on a daily basis kind of thing so absolutely not when i'm first drafting that I am first, <laughs> you mentioned the tiny weird obsessions and i think those are the things that maybe when we're younger we try and suppress because we, we don't want to be too different but actually it's the tiny weird obsessions that readers love isn't it it's and and the tiny yeah. things that you think are weird uh, to you and only you understand, it turns out there are loads of people out in the world who get this as well. That's Have you found that to be true? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when I wrote That Green-Eyed Girl, one of the things I've always been quite weirdly obsessed with is cities. I, right. I mean, most people love nature and I think nature's pretty, but I'm a city girl right. and I love cities. I love the fascination of there. Are, how many people have walked down those streets before you? And I'm fascinated with houses. I love those movies where you get that New York cityscape and then the camera zooms in yeah. to one apartment building <laughs> and then one window. And I'm like, oh, my God, I am so totally obsessed with who's lived in that house before you or who's walked down that street and that kind of sliding doors kind of coincidence kind of thing. And I just explored that obsession to death for my first novel, really. I was just kind Brilliant. of, yeah, I find this really fascinating. And yeah. then all these people come, with, with all the readers who've come out and say, oh, I love that too. Yes, that fascinates me too. It's brilliant. It's all about making that connection, isn't it? Well, Julie, mm. what you mentioned book three. You mentioned you're writing a detailed plan. Is there anything you can tell us about it yet, or do you prefer to keep that under your hat? No, I can tell you uh, a little bit about it. I mean, it's going to be, um, uh, hopefully, maybe if I write t 
to the plan. Um, <laughs> a sister saga, it's complicated sisters. It's set in Berlin and it will hopefully take these complicated sisters through from kind of 1920s through to maybe 1960s. I don't know. Wow. Yet. We'll we'll see. It's a lot of research. I've had to do a lot of research. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my goodness me. But it fascinates me. And so um, I am exploring those weird fascinations. Brilliant. And is it the epic scope of it that's made you think, okay, I need to plan this out? Or was was there another reason for that? Or was it just the, the, the scale of it? Pure fear. <laughs> Pure fear. <laughs> yeah. I, I I looked at the scale of it and I thought, because when I did um, that Green Eye Girl, I did two uh, historical time periods, kind of 1950s and 1970s. But I actually grew up in the 1970s, so I remember the 1970s. Yeah. So I don't really have to do very much research for that. And then this one was kind of 1958. Um, and a lot of the details of it are not unfamiliar to me because a lot of those ways of like pubs and things were the same in 1958 as they were when I was working in them in the late 1970s, you know. But this is terrifying in the scale of it, <laughs> that three different time periods, three sections, I think it will be. And in a city that, you know, I've never lived in, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I did study history and uh, as part of uh, as my degree subject. And so I have studied it at that level. But yeah, the, the scale of it made me so scared I had to make a plan. And now my characters are doing things that are not on the plan. And, and <laughs> I, I tweeted this morning, and this is exactly how I'm feeling today of first drafting after having written two novels, that I feel like I'm at base camp in the Himalayas and, uh, you know, in my (laughs) flip-flops and a (laughs) T-shirt looking at the snowy peaks and thinking, that's a long way up there and I do not feel at all prepared. But one way or another, I'm going to wrestle this thing to the ground and we are going to have a book next year. Fantastic! It's I know that feeling all too well. Being being at the foot of the mount, mountain and thinking, "Oh, here we go again." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's it sounds amazing. Sounds incredible, and and we can't wait to read it. So, uh, Julie, thank you so much for your time today, folks. Seventy three Dove Street is out there now. Grab a copy; you will not regret it. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, and Julie, great to speak to you. And hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you so much, Mark. God, I tell you what, Mark. There, I, I was when I was listening to that interview. I was thinking, how many people listening to that interview along with us are sitting there and were in that position that Julie was in in her midlife, thinking, "Yeah, I really, I really need to do this. I really want to do this, but I don't know really where to start, or maybe I just don't feel I have the support that I need to give this its best crack." But what a story! I mean. Midlife, mature student. She went. She went and learned her craft. Yeah. Um, I love, but for me, the, the such an amazing way of putting it that she felt like she had abandoned her create creativity. Isn't that isn't that just a brilliant way of putting it? I think there's a lot of people that feel like they just they've put all their creative side of their life on the sidelines in the wings of their play of their life, so to speak, and and just left it there with the intention that one day they're going to pick it up. And I just wonder how many people listening to this right now going, yeah, that's me. That's absolutely me. 
Yeah, I think sometimes it's seen, you know, if you've got you've got bills to pay, you've got family, if you've got to put a roof yeah. over your head, get food on the table, that kind of thing, it's, it's sometimes it's seen as maybe it's frivolous or maybe it's uh, maybe it's just, you know, put away childish things or maybe it was just a, you know, just a pipe dream or whatever. But actually this stuff is so important. It's so important to be creative. And if you if it's something that brings you happiness, if it's something that injects a bit of life and soul into you, I mean, it's it, it. I mean, we just you know we just saw with the writers' strike. You know, we just saw that uh, people miss it when new things aren't coming on. They panic when your favorite film or whatever has been delayed a year because the actors aren't around for it. You know, this stuff is really. I I, I remember I, I did some plays with Unity Theatre in Camden when I was sort of in my early twenties, and one of the actors there remembered an actor strike. I think in the sixties. And I made a joke here, oh, did anyone notice? And he was like, yeah, they really did. And he, he, he it was the director, actually, he gave me a bit of a bollocking. He was like, what we do is important. <laughs> you know, he's, he was like, this is telling stories, how we make sense of the world. It's, it's um, you know, it, making some kind of emotional connection through storytelling is what sets us apart from the beasts, you know? It's, uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But also from the day-to-day side of things i think a lot of people really what i picked up from julia so there was this kind of this void in her life that she just was pining for and knew that there was this big part of her life that wasn't getting fed and i tend to think of you know life is all about balance and you know obviously everyone a lot of people you know got very long hours doing the doing their day jobs um They've got, you know, kids to look after, parents to look after, you know, the sandwich generation now with, with you know, funding kids going to college and looking after yeah, parents yeah, in their old yeah. age. I mean, and so there's all this stuff happening. And what often gets, I always think of nurses. I always think of nurses. I remember meeting a nurse once and she said, you know, I, I spend all my day looking after patients and it's hard work. And then I come home and then I spend all my evening looking after the kids and my husband. <laughs> <laughs> and then I flop into bed completely knackered and think, hang on a minute, I had nothing, not even a minute to myself today to do what I wanted to do. And so I think there's this really important part of being a writer and owning it, giving yourself an excuse or a reason to just do those 200 words a day, those 15 minutes a day, because it's a bit like having that balanced diet. Like, you know, writing's like your vegetables in some ways it, it it nurtures you it's it's probably the most one of the most healthiest things you can do for yourself in terms of working through your own things but but also just acknowledging that you're worth you know in, th- in the words of l'oreal you know you're worth it you're worth the 15 <laughs> minutes <laughs> you know just to gift yourself that time and when it's not there at all when there's this void like julie was talking about i think we start to kind of shrivel up a bit you know, mm. as human beings, like if, if we don't exercise that creative muscle, it starts to atrophy. And then, you know, one day we wake up and you just almost feel like creatively dead. And so the fact that Julie recognized that and she didn't then use the next excuse, which mo- most people use, which is, well, it's too late now. I, I should have done that in my 20s. I should have gone to yeah. da 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 and, and, and telling herself that story, which I know a lot of people have done and they put this off and off and off. But here's someone who in their... I think it was in her fifties, really. She was probably getting started, mm. and then she got published at sixty-one. Is that right? Yeah, yeah wow. I think she got the deal when she was sixty, and the book was at sixty. Amazing. And as she said, you know, publishers don't care. I know there is this impression, particularly it depends on your genre. Like if you're writing Yauk, a lot of 
you know, uh, Yelk, YA, you know, mm. but if you go to Yelk, all the authors are of a certain age, you know, mid-20s to sort of late-30s, you know, because they're writing to their own generation, if you like. But yeah. uh, And that's not to say older people can't write YA. Of course they can. But publishers, all they care about is, do I love it? Can I sell it? You know? Mm. Um, and if you happen to be of a certain age, they they don't care. I mean, my my aunt Marion, you know, her I think she was published around about the same age when she did her, her biography. Um, I think she was about sixty something, and that was an Irish Times bestseller. And uh, you know, and to be fair, that was probably the only time she could write that book. She couldn't have written it twenty years previously. So sometimes yeah. it's the time is right. Sometimes you know, it's about you are ready for something that perhaps you weren't ready for before. So don't think of it as, oh, I've wasted time or I've started too late. Think of it as now is the time. This Yeah, the time now is, is the right time. Yeah, and I, I like to think of that fatalistically. If, if people are thinking I should have done it in my 20s and my 30s, even 40s or even 50s, um, it wasn't right for you at that point because things were happening in your life that prevented you from doing it. But if you're sitting here listening to this right now or walking or driving and thinking, okay, this is, this is a message from the universe for me. I need to get on this. I want, I want to give you all a challenge. If you're listening to this today and this conversation, Julie's interviews, inspiring you to step across that threshold and you're going to do it, drop us a note. Tell us that you're going to do it. Tell us you're going to go for it. Um, Tell us if you want us to share that on the podcast or not, even if you just want to keep it private between Mark, you know, me, me and Mark, you may be a bit scared about putting your name out there saying you're going to write a book and all your friends will be like, hang on a minute, did I hear you on the bestseller experience saying you're going to write a book? Even if you don't want us to just, just let us know and just say, don't say this out loud, but I'm going to do it. Thank you, you know, the, you know to Julie for, for inspiring me. We want to hear if this is your moment because we want to be cheering you on. And then maybe, you know, six months down the road, you might be saying, oh, I finished my first draft. And that's how we see it time and time again, don't we, Mark? People just taking that. It's the mental step across the threshold. You've got to do that first before you even write the first word in many cases Absolutely. or the next word. There was there was an author, and I can't remember who it was, so I won't misremember in case we get sued. But there was an author on Twitter a few weeks ago who basically said, oh, by the time you get to your 40s, uh, you're too exhausted to write. And what, what, what? was, what was, what, I know. And what was wonderful about that was the tsunami of a backlash of people going, that might be you, Charlie, but it ain't me. It wasn't something yeah, Charlie. Yeah, yeah. You know, it no. was, it was like what utter cobblers, you know, I, and I'm, you know, 50. Uh, I've never felt more, you know, energized as a writer. It's, there are uh, it's, some things in life that you do get more tired doing as you get older. It doesn't mean you, I mean, like, you know, when you get, when even in my fifties, I was out tackling the garden with brambles the other day, and I was knackered. I was like, <laughs> oh. but you know, I can still do it. The point is, is that, but the point is with writing is you can write, you can, we can all literally write on our deathbed if we wanted to. So the point is, is this is one of the things that you're never, never too old to do. In fact, it becomes more precious the later in life you do it and the longer you do it in life as well. So, so yeah, get, get on it folks. We want to hear from you because, and also let's just talk about her rejections as well. I mean, here's someone who started, you know, started midlife in quotes, whatever that is these days. Mm. And then, and then went through the process of all those, I mean, 70 rejections. Yeah. And then to sign a deal with Penguin, that's absolutely mental, isn't it? That's absolutely yeah. and, brilliant. And when, when you hear people go, Oh, I've had, 10 rejections I'm giving up 
it's like you haven't even begun. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Just get so, get the next 20 done and then you yeah. can start getting to the yeah. serious the serious like, uh, option not, opportunities. Exactly. It's uh it's and and like I've said before the rejection never goes away. It's it's a constant. You just, you know, you just have to knuckle down and and enjoy the process, you know. Here's a question. How many how many publishing companies are there in the world, do you think? I mean, it's, I mean, how many thousands of how many thousands yeah. of publishing company i mean what are we talking i'm going to stab at fifty thousand. it might be well, way more than that i mean yeah, talking about mean, even the small ones right yeah but the point is is that if you've only technically you've i'm only, a publisher exactly yeah so if you've only got 50 rejections there's you're not even like one percent of the way in, in terms of fishing right you've got a lot more fish in the pool so i think the reason being is the weight of one rejection that first rejection in particular is very heavy. It's like, and it's hard. It's like a, it's a, it's a no thank you. And it, and it, and it hits you. So, but I think as you get, you probably, I'm sure you must build up those calluses. You know, by the time Julie got to her 20th rejection, she's like, all right, bring it on, come on, let's keep going. And she's like, whatever, next. <laughs> and then she ended up getting, getting after 70. So I just think it's a great reminder to people that part of the process, part of the process is just getting those rejections. Badges I think, I think Julie, if she's worked in film as well, will know all about rejection because that is just that is rejection city, rejection capital of the world. It is, is. Uh, yeah, is is working in film. Yeah, it's just it, they're constantly saying no, constantly yeah. saying no. Absolutely brilliant stuff. Now let's also talk about the way that Julie presented this idea of not comparing herself to other people, which is the biggest, one of the biggest challenges we see all the time. We all do it. We all read the most amazing book and then we're inspired to write, but then we're also depressed thinking, God, how am I ever going to top that or even equal the brilliance of that book? And it's always about comparing. But what Judy said, which I absolutely loved, and I think it's the first time I've heard this on the podcast, she said, I'm going to write the best Julie Owen Moylan book. Mm. And that's the secret, isn't it? That is yeah, absolutely, right. you know, insert name here, right? And, and it just relieves you of all of that pressure of having to try to become or be the next Stephen King, the next Agatha Christie. It's not yeah. about that. It's about the, who you are going to be as an author and your and uniqueness. I, I think that comes from finding your voice as well, because yeah. when you're starting out, you do it's like trying on costumes or trying on shoes. It's like, oh, I want to be like this author. I want to be like that author. And you can try it on and see what works and what doesn't and what resonates and blah, blah, blah. And it's definitely worth doing. That's why a lot of people start writing fan fiction because it takes, it lifts the weight of the world building and the yeah. character creation. You just, I'm, I'm going to play, I'm going to put on fancy dress and I'm going to pretend to be this person today and we're going to have fun with it. And that's great. But if you want to then move on from fan fiction to your own fiction, then you have at least learned, you know, a lot of the skill set you need to yeah. write fiction. But then you have to go, oh, okay, I need I need to make this about me. This needs to be my voice. Mm. It needs to be my stories. And again, talking about those those tiny weird obsessions, you know, the things you think no one's going to be interested in are actually the things that probably everyone is going to be interested in because they won't have come across them before. At least not not combined with the package that is you. And that's the important thing. That that combination is completely unique in the world. So mm. uh, be as weird and unique and obsessive and strange as, as you can be. And that even goes down to your writing as well and how you oh, see 
and how you see the world like that's mm. maybe the thing that makes that's what I'm talking about. You, yeah, totally. yeah you, totally. it makes it's your uniqueness it's your kind of secret source in some way which even as individuals we probably don't understand what that fully is but it means that we're not all carbon cup copies of each other so that's that's the biggest thing to remember is that you you always bring that to your work no matter who you are because your life experiences are are a unique set of different things which have happened but just it's learned, to you. But it's learning that you're allowed to do that. A lot of people mm. think they're not allowed. They think, oh, well, if I'm going to write a cosy crime, oh my gosh, I suppose it needs to be like Agatha Christie. Or if I'm going to write a horror novel, oh, I guess it needs to be like Stephen King. No, 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 no. You write you. Write you uh, you yeah. make it your version of that. You can take the chord structure, but write your own lyrics. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, when you think about fang fiction as well, I always think of it's a bit, a bit like it's a bit like the equivalent of an artist doing a cover version of a of their favourite song, yeah, totally. and, they, and they put their own they put their own selves to it. And and sometimes the cover versions can be better than the originals because as a as a reader, you just prefer that different style or that approach. So, yeah. yeah, I love that. I think everyone should remember that. It should then we should all write it out, stick it on our writing wall in front of our monitor or our desk and say, you know, I'm writing the best, insert your name so here. Insert your name here. But, <laughs> right, yeah. Maybe we should do like custom mugs. Yeah. Custom mugs hidden talked underneath the merch, bottom. haven't we? Yeah. We have talked about merch, <laughs> Now, folks, we've got a lot more that we want to talk about. And uh, we, in the extended edition of this podcast, we're going to cover visual writing. Um, we're going to cover the importance of school career days and beyond. And we've got some riffing on this because this brings me back. Oh, my gosh. Brings me back to like secondary school and sitting across that desk from that careers advisor. We're also going to discuss as well uh, the importance of writing in your life. Uh, Julie mentioned this idea of a good use of heartbeats. So we're going to talk a little bit about just why it's really important to show up to write in terms of the context of your life. So that if you like a bit of deep deep life philosophy and inspiration join us for that and we're also going to delve deep into the idea of flashback structure which uh, julie referenced as well so if you'd like to join us on the extended you know what to do folks you simply pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support you sign up to our ten dollar a month is that it is that all it is mark ten dollars it is ridiculous what? bargains what? galore what? hundreds what of hours doing? of free amazing stuff and what, what that does is every single person that signs up to that is contributing towards the, the creation of this podcast. It's helping us uh, employ the team that put this together and helps us bring this podcast to you every week. So you'll also get a lovely feel-good feeling. So pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and you'll get another like probably 20, 30 minutes of today's podcast um, exclusively for yourselves and Academy members. So Mark, tell us what's happening in wins and socials this week. Ah, well, now you remember last week, uh, Susie Edge got one of those purple most number one most gifted flags on Amazon. And we were thinking, mm. I haven't seen that before. Well, uh, Sarah Moorhead, author of The Treatment, she was on the podcast just a few weeks ago. Uh, she's got one for her book, The Treatment, as well. And other authors are starting to get them. So this is a whole new thing on Amazon, most gifted, which is wonderful. So uh, if you're looking for the perfect Christmas gift, I recommend The Holly King by Mark Stay. Um, so yeah, congrats <laughs> to Sarah for that. Desperate to get that purple. <laughs> Purple flag now, aren't you? Come on, I'm going to get the purple flag. I've got an orange one. I've had an orange one. I want a purple one now. Um, uh, and speaking of, of Susie Edge, uh, just amazing. In history bestsellers, Vital Organs, number one, 
uh, in audio and vital organs number two in uh, physical. <laughs> it's just brilliant. Yeah, just, Isn't that interesting that the audio is number one? Yeah, she said, uh, she said I, was looking, I was looking up the, the hardcover of Vital Organs and it said number two on the bestseller chart. She said, out of annoyance, I clicked to see who was in number one position and it was her audio. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. That's, That's just fantastic. amazing. Now, she's still you, out selling Prince Harry. Oh, Prince Harry's be. long gone. Harry. Long gone. Yeah, <laughs> long gone. He's <laughs> dust. He's dust. <laughs> Now, you remember uh, last week we read an extract from S.C. Gowland's new book, uh, mm. uh, Delusions and Dragons, where we featured in that. Well, turns out that's, that wasn't the first time. You know, uh, Mike Shackle got in touch, and I'm a murder victim <laughs> <laughs> in his book, The Killing Game. Me and Andrew Chapman, not you, you get off. So not only do you get an extra chapter in Steve Gowland's book, off, but you free. don't get murdered in Mike's book. Oh, so, yeah, it, um, I'm a... I'm a murderer, and and uh, well, actually, Andrew Chapman is a detective sergeant. He's DS Andrew Chapman, and I'm Mark Stay, eighteen, murdered on the twelfth of December. Great, oh, thanks. I'll tell you, actually, a couple of months on the theme. Yesterday, I was in stand-up comedy class, and one of the guys was telling us a story about how he a true story because we're near Vancouver, which is a big film film uh, yes. world. Mm-hmm. He was the first dead body in the Flash. Episode oh, really? one, season one. Yeah, I think the scene opens with him lying on the floor on there looking at his body and trying to work out. And he said, he said they had no idea at the time, obviously, that it was going to become this massive, like, nine-series success story yeah, yeah, it yeah. became. And he said he was chuffed to bits when he was on it. But when he found out how successful he was, he was completely gutted because being a dead body in the first opening scene of the flash kind of like pretty much limits your opportunities for the rest of the series. But yeah. Well, you say that they have people back again and again. Uh, it does true. happen. Uh, now you've signed up to your little stand up comedy thing, which if you listen to the extended, extended. folks, you'll hear more of that. And yeah. listen, you've got to record one. Of the, you've got, to, you've got to do your tight five minutes when it's all done. But so if we're confessing little things like that, uh, I've signed up to an extras agency. I've just got some work as well. I'm doing really? some, uh, yeah, extras work. I just, I want to get on film sets and get TV sets. sets. I Brilliant. learn, you learn so I, much just from being I've on I've been set, thinking about so that. I know some friends that do this. I know some friends that do this even in Cambridge and they end up getting pulled in and they, they get dressed well, up for the day. Vancouver. Get, so Vancouver. Much yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they get, I mean, down the road, down the road uh, in Ladysmith, uh, which is about uh, not far from where I live, they actually filmed the Sonic movie with Jim Carrey and then the Sonic oh, really? 2 Yeah, we have a ton <laughs> of, um, we have a, like the, the series Alone, um, which is the kind of, you know, people getting dumped in the middle of nowhere and having to survive the longest. Right. That's filmed on the island. Mm. We've had the uh, Manchester, what's that film with? Um, Manchester by the Sea. By the Sea was filmed in Yuclula. Like this, this whole and Superman was filmed because we've got like, it's like, honestly, we got, we, it looks like chilly. It looks like, you know, Jurassic Park with all of yeah, the yeah. crazy like trees and things. There's so many different options. And then Vancouver, massive film. I mean, a lot of, lot of them, big productions happen there as well. But, yeah. oh, I can't. Okay, so that'll be a little theme over the next year. Maybe give us a bit of uh, <laughs> stories as an extra. I love it. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We shall see. I, I mean, there's no, no guarantee of work. Um, and uh, a lovely little win, which uh, comes from the Academy. Karen Story, who is just, you know. Um, Knocking out of the park. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, we were talking about newsletters on the Wednesday night surgery. And I said, look, start now. Start right now. And um, she said, while watching the surgery, her Persian cat, Tiffany, was making a pest of herself, jumping on my desk, walking over the keyboard. And a spark of inspiration hit. She said, I'm going to let Tiffany write the newsletter. 
And uh, she managed to drum up a list of 30 people for a newsletter. And she wrote, and I subscribed to it, and she wrote a newsletter as written by her cat's point of view. And it was absolutely brilliant. It was really funny. And she's what happened is people were now talking about Tiffany's newsletter on Facebook. And people who don't know Karen are now subscribing to her newsletter. So this is it. You know, all it takes is a little bit of some little That's bit of, you know, different thinking, a little bit of left field. Okay, let's do something different. So and she, I think she brilliant. said she came home and she found out that her her, her newsletter list had doubled. Yeah. in literally a day or two. But the thing I love about it, I mean, not just how brilliant an idea it is. Um, I mean, I know you've, 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 you've kind of inspired it, I'm sure, like with your librarian from the Woodville yes. Library, right? But the point, uh, the, the, the brilliance of using that third party makes it more fun to write rather than having to come up with yeah. something yourself every time. But she called it Breakfast was it active or with Tiffany? With Tiffany's, yeah. With yeah, Tiffany's, yeah. which I just think is great. So, you know, I mean, what an opportunity to to use your creative muscles. There's your 200 words a day, folks, as well. If you if you said, oh, I just haven't managed to get my newsletter started, 200 words a day, you'll, you'll write one day a week, you'll write your newsletter, get that out each week and start building that, that future or current now, fan base. Today. Brilliant. Well done, Karen. Excellent. Excellent. So, Brilliant. folks, if you want to get in touch, we're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Threads. So Facebook is Bestseller Experiment. Twitter, Instagram, Threads is at Bestseller XP. If you've been inspired by Julie or any of the authors who've been on podcast, uh, give us a rating. Uh, it really helps. Or just subscribe. Clicking that subscribe button really, really definitely helps. Uh, thanks, as always, to our editors, Dave and JD. Brilliant stuff, folks. And if you'd like to join the 200 word challenge, can you write consecutively for two, uh, for seven days, 200 words? That's all it takes. You think it's Give easy? It it's not easy. Give it a go, folks. 200wordchallenge.com and get the writing habit for a lifetime. Pop along to, to that web address. And also, if you'd like to get on our newsletter, join our mailing list and join many, many thousands of bestseller experiment fans and listeners, uh, you go to the bestsellerexperiment.com website and click on the newsletter tab and folks don't forget to join us next week uh, for our special seventh birthday edition and yeah. we look forward to celebrating with a very special author as we previewed at the beginning of this podcast so do join us then thank you for everyone who's been with us on this journey so far for seven years and if you're new you're really really welcome and we're looking forward to taking you on an adventure of a lifetime in writing so it's a goodbye from mark one and a goodbye from mark two Bye. Goodbye.